2: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
3: Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 173. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today, we talk about a few things, including Starlink Internet, Paul's final solution for his fieldwork in Iraq next month, and an awesome RTK solution from a listener. Let's get to it. Welcome to the show, everybody. Paul, how's it going? It's
2: going okay. Really, really busy lately, as always. Lots of projects, some bad family news that we're working through, but mm-hmm. um, also lots of really good feedback on some of our recent
3: episodes that I'd like to talk a little bit about. Yeah. You're back in the country now. <laughs> <laughs> I am. We spent a week in Cabo San Lucas. i never been down there before. For those that don't know where that's at, it's at the far... Southern tip of the Baja Peninsula, which is the little spit that uh, comes off Mexico just south of San Diego. And it's like if you just kept driving south on the coast from San Diego, you cross the border into Tijuana and then you're on the Baja Peninsula from that point on. It's in the state of Sur, I think, is what it is, because the um, license plates say BCS. So it's Baja California, comma Sur, S-U-R. But it's a really cool place. I mean, Cabo is basically all Canadians and Americans. So, you know, uh, there's a Costco. There's two Costco's. There was one in Cabo San Jose where we flew into and there's one in Cabo San Lucas. There's I think there's even like a Walmart or something like that. But uh, yeah, but there's in, there's a lot of Mexican flair, too. Uh, we went into town a few times. We were to resort this time around, but it's a really cool place. I want to possibly spend a lot more time down there. I want to do the California rock art tours to the, like the Baja pictograph sites Mm -hmm. that they go to. I mean, you have to take like a donkey, a burrow for many days to get to these things and then many days to get back out. It's just a really, really cool place. It reminds me of the high desert in Nevada or more likely like Arizona because there's cactuses. There's like their own version of like saguaro cactuses. They're a little bit smaller and a little bit different, but it's like a it's like a unique species. And the difference is. They're sitting right on the Pacific Ocean and the south end is kind of on the convergence of the Pacific Ocean, and the Sea of Cortez. So you get this really nice like offshore breezes that keep the humidity almost non-existent and the temperatures pretty consistent throughout the year, except for some slightly higher temperatures in the summertime and a little bit of humidity when the rains come in. But Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, it's such a cool place with a lot of history that I hope to be able to talk about on some of these podcasts coming up in the near future.
2: I was kind of wondering about the history. Do you Is there much archaeology that you're aware of other than that uh,
3: rock art in the area? You know, there has to be, is all I can say. I haven't researched it yet, but we are going back in April for a couple of weeks. And mm-hmm. I plan to really kind of dive into that when we, when we go there. And we might be going back there a little more long-term after that at some point, maybe not this year, but uh, at some point coming up in the future. And it's just such a cool place. And I'm thinking with the pictographs and the difficulty of how to get to those deep in the mountains of the of the Baja Peninsula. I mean, you don't just travel from like Mexico City to do that. Right. So there had to have been people living there. I'm willing to bet it was because of the temperate nature of the area where it's just like nice all the time. Like you don't need a lot of shelter and (laughs) covering. And, and I imagine like animals and cactuses and all that kind of stuff, food and things uh, with the sea right there were probably plentiful. And it's probably much like some areas on the California coast where actually finding habitation sites could be a little bit of a problem unless they had like shell mounds and stuff. But Hmm. I don't actually know. It's something I want to research though. And then report back on the network. One of the shows that we have. Cool. Yeah. And I might be doing that from Cabo with a Starlink satellite dish. If I can get a Mexican one, <laughs> <laughs> that that leads us into this first segment on this sort of potpourri episode we've got here, where we've got a, a bunch of things we're trying to catch up on. I've mentioned probably on this show. I, I can't think of any time specifically, but uh, I, you know, having b- being living in an RV, uh, internet is always a problem for us, and mm-hmm. one of the solutions to internet it's not the full solution and it's not the only tool in your your internet toolbox but one of the solutions has been starlink internet and while you might be thinking if you're a a traveling archaeologist listening to this you might be thinking well you know what could i do with starlink how could i possibly use that to be honest you probably can't because if you're living in hotel rooms and stuff they're more than likely not going to let you put your starlink dish on the roof it has to be able to point north which could be a problem if you're in a hotel room you're not going to run it out the door or something like that But if you work in the West and, you know, there are certain times of the year where you do a lot more camping projects, you do a lot more projects where they just give you cash per diem. And and I know people that just go camp on like BLM land. Maybe they have a van or a truck. You see a lot of Toyota Tacomas that are modified for for sleeping Mm -hmm. in in the back and If you've got your Starlink dish, now you need AC power to run it. So you might have to do some other upgrades to whatever your mobile situation is. You need some kind of an inverter. This thing only pulls... I don't know what it pulls when it's acquiring, but when it's running, it only pulls about 40 or 50 watts, which really is not that bad. The first generation Starlink, the the round one, pulled over 100. And then they came out with Gen 2 of the round one, which was down around 70 or 80 watts. And now we've got... They call it Dishy McSquareface because <laughs> the other one was Dishy McFlatface and this is Dishy McSquareface. It's the square rectangular version, which I guess they just got more efficient with their their antenna inside there. It's smaller, it's lighter, and it pulls less watts, but does the same job. So I love how with yeah. your uh, van life, you know the wattage <laughs> of everything that you carry I'll along tell you with you. <laughs> if you follow us on Instagram at Roadster Adventures, R-O-D-S-T-E-R Adventures, that's my wife and I's like combined, uh, you know, channel for our travels. We've got a segment I want to do a lot more of that. It's called What's the Watts? And it's basically super short. We're putting it on our upcoming podcast and some of our videos for the longer form version of that. But still the longer form is like 30 seconds, right? But for the like Instagram Reels version, it's basically looking at something, looking at the panel that shows us the we have a pretty fancy panel that shows us exactly what we're pulling at any point in time. We shut everything else off and then we turn this one thing on to see what's the startup because a lot of ac appliances have a -hmm. a pretty high startup cost and it might pop your inverter right if you don't have a big enough inverter to handle that like the air conditioning units have what's called a soft start on them it's a special thing made just for air conditioning units so they can ramp up slowly because their initial kick-on for that compressor will blow every circuit in your house uh, in your rv so or even if you've got like a van or something like that all the ac units run basically the same way do you have one of those uh those kilowatt devices do you know what i'm talking about uh,
2: I don't think it's a so. Little, it's a little white box that you put in in line oh. between the outlet and whatever you yeah. want to plug into it, and it'll tell right. you the, uh, the the wattage that that uh, the device is pulling. So I have one actually. I got it years mm-hmm. ago. I can't remember what project I needed it for, but I was curious about something. Yeah. And it's really helpful for seeing things that you wouldn't otherwise notice, like all the vampiric power that like your TV set does. Yes. Right. So a lot of things have kind of a sneaky soft start. They they seem like they're shut down, but they're still drawing power. And so those things are extremely useful for pinpointing exactly what is drawing how much in your house.
3: Yeah. And we've done a lot of boondocking in the last like month and a half, which for those that don't know is basically you're off all services. You, you have no power, no water and you know, your, your sewer tanks, your black tank and your gray tank are, you know, when they're full, they're full, you gotta go, uh, you gotta go empty them. So that's boondocking. You're, you're not connected to anything. And mm-hmm. we have, as I've mentioned in the past, we've got solar on the roof. We've got lithium down in the base for the batteries and, But still, you need to manage it, uh, especially overnight when you don't have that solar power coming in. So we have the ability to turn our inverter into basically charge-only mode. We do that just because if we forget to like turn it on in the morning, the inverter, when the sun starts coming up, I want it to start bringing in solar power immediately. So don't turn it completely off. But putting Mm -hmm. it in just charge-only drops it down to almost no watts that the, the at least the power system is pulling. But when you do that, all your AC appliances turn off and we've looked at it in the evening. Cause I'm sitting here looking at the TV right now and it's got that like red light on it. And that red light pulls a few Watts. Right. And it's yep. keeping just enough inside that TV where if you turn it on, it comes on relatively quickly. That's why they do that. You know, mm-hmm. otherwise it, it takes longer to power up the microwave. I'm looking at a clock on it. That's pulling a few more Watts. And yep. depending on how much power you have on board, how many amp hours of basically energy you have in your batteries. We have 300 amp hours. We're rolling to 600 at the end of March. So that'll help out. But depending on how much you have, I mean, that's just pulling that down slowly, but surely, slowly, but surely. And if in the morning it turns out it's a cloudy day or something like that, you could be, you could be in a world of hurt for a work day if you're using things like Starlink all day, stuff like that. But that's another thing you have to factor in too. Like if you don't have enough amp hours to leave your inverter on overnight, then you're going to have to shut off your AC, which means you lose your internet overnight as well. And then you, you don't get mm-hmm. your internet back until you turn it on in the morning. So yeah, a lot of things to consider in this lifestyle, but. You know, sorry, this is a little uh, sideways from what, but it just, you just
2: reminded me of something with the Starlink. I, th- I thought I saw a, uh, a headline the other day about
3: uh, a oh, bunch yeah. of their satellites uh, going down. Do you know anything yeah. about that? And did it affect you? It didn't affect me. And I do know something about that. It's- The story is Starlink wants to have somewhere around, I think, 45,000 satellites in the sky, and they're going to be in what they call shells. I think there's four or five shells. So right now, they're basically in shell one and shell two, the closer ones into the planet, where they're basically putting as many satellites up as they can in different areas. They're focusing on more rural areas. So if you live in like a big city, you're simply not going to have Starlink because while they want those people as customers, they know they're not giving up their their high speed plug in internet <laughs> anytime soon, <laughs> right? So the more rural areas and places that doesn't that don't have like great internet are where you're more going to find satellite um, service from Starlink. So it's most of like lower Canada, southern Canada, all of the United States except for the big cities and st- places like that. Mexico has it like northern Mexico, and then I think it goes all the way over into the UK and some of the uh, some of Europe. There, they're they're filling them out more, but that's that's what they have right now. And there's only about 3,000 satellites in the sky from the last thing I heard, um, which is a lot, but it's not a lot when you're talking about coverage. And not only coverage, but capacity, which we'll get to in a minute. But that being said, these satellites are still relatively close together from a space standpoint, from, from like a being in space standpoint. I mean, I don't think you could see one from the other, but they're still like relatively close together. Well, there was a solar flare and solar flares are relatively... Uh, they're directed, they're high energy, and they have the ability and they've done this in the past. There was a a famous one, I think, in the late 1800s that shut down like New York City and and other places, or maybe it was early 1900s or something when electricity was just kind of coming into play. The early telegraph mm-hmm. machines, everything went down because of a solar flare because they couldn't handle it. We have more robust power systems these days that can handle solar flare activity. So you don't hear about that kind of stuff happening, but it is possible if one's directed enough and it's, and it hits the right spot. That being said, space is, is totally subject to solar flares (laughs) and they lost 40 satellites. 40 satellites were completely destroyed in one focused area because the solar flare, like again, it comes in with a force and it destroyed 40 satellites. And they all basically, if not if they didn't do it on their own, they'll be deorbited and uh, and burned up in the atmosphere. That's how the satellites die anyway. They're relatively small, and that's what they're designed to do. So Wow. So destroyed them. Not just knocked them offline for a bit, but but ruined them. Yeah, they're done. Yeah, they got to replace those satellites. <laughs> no. So, yeah. But I think they're building them in a way that that's kind of the plan, right? The, the plan is mm-hmm. not to send humans up to fix these things, because that's really expensive and dangerous. Oh, yeah. The plan is to just deorbit them and put up another one, right? I mean, I think that's how they're building them. They're they're not building them for I don't want to say they're not building them to be robust. They're robust enough to be in space and and last where they're at. But it's easier just to replace it than it is to fix it. So I imagine in the future we'll have like a fleet of robot technicians out there maintaining the Starlink satellites and all the other satellites. But, you know, we don't have that yet. It's easier just to let it deorbit and put up another one. So that gets to one of the service issues with Starlink is capacity. And Mm -hmm. I got a bunch of other stuff to talk about on how to get your Starlink dish. But, you know, let's talk about that since we're since we're kind of in there. This is the big problem we're going to have. You can move your service address anytime you want. Starlink... Is they've received FCC permission for mobile units, like for RVs, boats, and airplanes, that will continuously stay connected on a gimbal system. They'll just always stay connected to whatever array they're looking at, and then you can travel with it and have that internet. Uh, the real consequence for RVers and probably boaters and stuff is you don't really need it while you're moving per se, but you know you won't have to change your service. You just like wherever you are, you have the internet, right? You don't, you don't have to reset it back up. So mm-hmm. the problem right now, though, is because they're still in shells one and two, trying to fill those out across the whole planet. And then they'll start working on shells three, four and five, which those satellites will start building capacity. So there's only a certain number of dishes that can be connected in a 15 kilometer wide hex- hexagon. That's the that's what the service area is. It's a 15 kilometer wide hexagon. And when you move your service address into that hexagon, it's going to tell you one of two things. It's either going to say that they don't have service in that area yet, so they're just not providing Starlink there, or it's going to say there's no capacity. There's no, it's, it, We're at capacity in this area. We plan to add more later. That's what it's going to say. Or it's just going to, bam, move your service address to there without question. And if it does that, like we're leaving where we're at right now in Tucson on Thursday morning, actually Thursday afternoon. But... We can't actually try to move our satellite, uh, our Starlink. I don't think we're going to get it. We're going up to Phoenix, and I don't think there's service up there anyway, so it's not going to be an issue. But if we were going to a place where we thought we might have service... The minute we move it, we lose it here. We still have the dish. It's still pointing at the sky, but we moved our service address so it will no longer work. <laughs> so <laughs> so while we're in transition, we can't actually use it. And if we were like moving across the country and moving every day, we probably just wouldn't have Starlink as one of our internet options. We'd have to use one of our cell options that we have on board. So that's one of the downsides. Now, Rachel did mention, uh, my wife, she did mention, hey, maybe we should just get two Starlinks so <laughs> we can move one early to try to get into the cell where we're going. Because again, capacity is an issue, but the people are moving in and out of those. And then, you know, we always use one at a time. The two problems with that are one, you can only have one per account right now. So we'd have to have a whole separate account to do that. And two, it's $100 a month. (laughs) So, you know, (laughs) yeah, that really does add up. I mean, you're definitely paying $200 a month, and you're definitely only using one at a time. So that's not exactly efficient if you're trying to, you know, save money. Now we use this for business. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a business expense as far as paying for the internet goes. It's, it's a write off, so to speak. So, so it makes sense, but I couldn't, I couldn't justify 200 a month for that. I'm already paying well over that for internet with all our cell networks and stuff. So we're going to, we're going to start probably getting rid of some of those, but anyway, kind of the nuts and bolts on on how the service actually works. I think maybe we'll take a short break right now and we'll come back and I'll just finish up a little bit before we get into our next topic on how you actually get a Starlink dish and what the costs really are, just in case you're, you're interested in that. So let's take this break, and we'll talk about it on the other side. Back in a minute.
1: You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.
3: Welcome back to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 173. And we're talking Starlink for another few minutes. I just want to talk about the ordering process real quick because... It's really frustrating. Uh, you First off, you have to go to Starlink.com. You have to start an account and you have to place an order. That's going to cost you $100. Uh, it's a refundable deposit. If you choose to cancel your order, they'll give you your $100 back. But it's $100 to put down. And then you put in your service address. You have a billing address and you can put in your service address. And your service address is what will return the message that I got a year ago when I first put this on my account. I tried Reno. Reno. I didn't know anything about it. So I tried Reno and it said, oh, we're targeting service in your area in mid to late 2021 is what it said. I tried a bunch of other addresses of places where I knew I could have it shipped because I thought that's where I needed to send it. And then I could change it because I'd heard you could change your service address, but I I didn't really get what that meant. So I was trying like my parents' address in Oregon, my grandma's address in Washington, Rachel's family's address in Charlotte. But all those places are in relatively populated areas where you know, they just didn't have Starlink yet. And the service always said mid to late 2021 and and then sometimes leading into 2022. Well, when I went to this RVing event last month, the guy was saying, no, just try different random latitude, longitude locations on the Starlink map in like Wyoming (laughs) because that's where (laughs) they are targeting. And I did that. And I did that like the day that I went to this seminar and all of a sudden, I was now shipping in early February 2022. And that was like three weeks away. And then I got an email actually in the last week of January that said, Your Starlink is ready to ship. And when you get the Your Starlink is ready to ship email, first off, it charges you $499 if you accept that, because that's the price of the equipment. In addition to that 100 you already paid, you have to pay mm-hmm. it. So it's basically 600 bucks. So you pay the additional 500 for the dish, and then you have three you have 3 days basically when they send you that email to change your shipping address which basically means your deliver your service address. So then right. I changed it to where we were in Arizona and it shipped to us. And then now I'm able to just basically change my service address whenever I want. You can do it unlimited number of times. There's people that are publishing like Google Maps where they all the points where they've gotten Starlink. <laughs> so you can see these places where it has it because Starlink doesn't actually publish where they have service. This is all basically crowdsourced information. And, and people are just well, trying to figure it out. A little frustrating. So, it is. It is. And I, I don't know if they're doing that just to stay a little bit mysterious or if they just simply it's it's a moving target so much that they just, I don't know, they're just not paying attention to it. They obviously know where they have service because when you punch in your service address, you know, it says that, of course, they know because they're satellites. But the fact that they're so black box with the information, the fact that the Cells are 15 kilometer wide hexagons is crowdsourced information. People have literally moved the the pin around a number of times and mapped it out basically using the coordinates on the really bad Starlink map on their website and then put that onto like a Google Maps map or some other, or people are using like GIS for this to actually map out the cells. And that's how we know what shape they are and how big they are and how we know basically where they are and how this all works. So... Yeah, that is a little frustrating. I think they just want to get to the point where it just works for everybody everywhere, which I get. But for the early adopters, man, they really need some more support. So... Hmm. Anyway, so that's the ordering process and the cost. Speeds, Paul and I were doing some comparison speed tests. I'm a little surprised my speeds are as low as they are. We're right in the middle of a cell from what I can tell. We're in the middle of nowhere outside Tucson, but we're getting 86 download. Uh, And this is on my computer connected to Wi-Fi. The Starlink router, it actually comes with its own router. For an extra cost, you can buy a, a part that allows you to run Starlink through your own router. But if you don't get that, which we don't have yet, then we're running it through the Starlink router, which is a pretty good router, actually. I don't know a whole lot about it, but it's all the latest bells and whistles as far as routers go. But we're getting 86 megabits per second down and uh, 14 up. But we've seen as high as 230 down and like 60 up. And by comparison,
2: I'm on uh, my cable internet at home. I'm getting 100 down and 10 up. But the big caveat is that both of us are on Wi-Fi. So (laughs) you know that last step introduced a lot of variability into into um, yeah. these measurements. You know, it would be much better if we were wired directly to our routers and then we could see, you know more realistic or more reliable numbers because as we all know you know wi-fi is extremely variable to uh placement of the uh the computer relative to the router and what's in the way Mm -hmm. and if there's metal in the way and what kind of reflections you have and so on and so forth
3: yeah and that's the thing with the starlink you can't actually even plug into the router it's got one hole in and that's coming from the dish the rest of it is wi-fi out yeah so you have to buy the 40 dollars part or whatever that you actually plug the the cable coming in from the dish and It comes with a 75 foot cable, by the way. So you can put this thing basically wherever you want. We bought a pole that has an upper suction cup and a lower suction cup. So we can basically, we have a 16 feet of pole that we can put anywhere on our RV to get it basically over the RV and up over any obstructions that might be um, in the way. It Mm -hmm. needs a view of the northern sky, which is a little different than most satellite dishes for like TV and stuff, which are all equatorial. So you need a view of the uh, Southern sky with Starlink's focus right now on Northern, more rural areas. Starlink needs a more Northern focused uh, view of the sky. So if you're thinking about your house, which is where a lot of people are getting Starlink, if you live in a rural area, but you're surrounded by trees, you're going to have to think about where you're going to put that thing if you don't have an unobstructed view of the Northern sky. So you're going to have to get it up high or, or get it far away from the house, <laughs> but the router <laughs> the uh the dish everything is completely waterproof and in fact the dish has automatic heating on it that will you know melt off snow and things with it, when it senses snow on the dish it will actually melt off right. the snow and do and that that's where it's and attract cats. I was going to say that's where the article coming around for that is. That's why the cats don't like the flat one because it's smaller. <laughs> <laughs> this this rectangular one, yeah. So,
2: uh, let me ask you a question about that placement. How finicky is it? Do you have to like get it exactly the proper angle? Oh, or well, I've much never much worried you about you it in, in aiming it.
3: I, I haven't worried about it. You don't have to aim it. You just plug it in. And it aims itself. It takes just a couple minutes. Oh, even so it's if- like got a motor on it. Oh yeah. Yeah. It'll track right now. It'll track everything. Yeah. So, yeah, you don't have to aim it. You don't have to do anything. And in fact, people have done tests where they started driving and the satellite mm-hmm. will start to track. Now, the problem with that, you might think, well, then why can't I use it while I'm driving? Because the motors they have in there are not set up for doing 70 miles an hour down the highway and handling that mm-hmm. kind of wind while also tracking satellites. And it's also not designed to, to hop between cells. You'd have to move your service. So there's lots of things working against you You know, as far as that goes. And when they come out with their mobile capable one, it's going to be, a lot more stable and, and have more powerful motors to be able to handle those kinds of things. Of course, it'll probably be in a dome or something like that too. So it doesn't have to deal with the wind and stuff a lot, but it's also going to have to be a lot more stable to handle vibration and things like that. But no, we I, I put it up on this pole and I generally point it north because I don't want it to work too hard, but it's it's in stow mode when I take it out of the box, which is basically flat. And then once I plug it in and I take it out of stow mode, it angles itself back up. And then if we're in a completely new, space, it might take two or three minutes, but it doesn't take long for it to acquire satellites and, and go online. So it's pretty quick.
2: Ooh, cool.
3: Oh, I'll mention one last thing. If you're crossing borders, like I said, Mexico, we might have to get a new one. It doesn't work across borders, like a lot of things. <laughs> for some reason, <laughs> it's highly regional, even though it's the same dish, it's the same everything. You physically have to buy a new dish. You can use your same account, but you have to buy a new dish if you go into Canada or Mexico and expect to use your Star- your Starlink. So that's really strange to me. I don't know why that is, but it is what it is. So it's a whole regulatory government thing, probably. It's literally the same piece of equipment, but you have to buy a new one. Now there's plenty, there's a lot of dishes actually on the open market right now. They're going for more than you can get one from Starlink because people are jerks. But I've heard of people, you know, RVing in Canada, you know, for the summer or something like that, and they got their Starlink up there, and then they come to the United States and they sell their Canadian Starlink dish and buy a U.S. Starlink dish just on the open market from somebody else. So there's definitely a, a crowd for that. But all right, so for the last part of this podcast, in the last part of this segment and segment three, we're going to talk about a really cool email that we got and and Paul's preparations for his upcoming projects because they're somewhat related. So, Paul. Yeah. Yeah. So
2: let me cue that up. Episodes, I think, 168 and 170, I was talking about projects that I'm working on, uh, specifically how I was trying to come about with um, with the methodology for using Mobile MobileJS for data collection in the field in Iraq. And... I was, you know, I was chewing with my mouth open. I was, uh, I was mulling over certain ideas, expressing some of the, uh, the problems and concerns I had in hope of getting some feedback. And, uh, yeah, wow, we got a lot of feedback. So actually before I go into what some of that feedback was I just want to put this out there if you're listening to this and you're working on any kind of project that is you know you're gearing up for field season you're gearing up for a um, for field school for whatever and you want to work through some issues some technical issues we would love mm-hmm. to have you on this on this podcast yeah. to discuss those because I think that there's a lot of value in showing the process not just the finished product Right? Yeah. I really like trying to grapple with the issues that we're having because somebody's always going to come up with some idea that uh, that's vastly simplifies or vastly complicates depending on uh, on what you've done. What you're working on. And I think that's really good. I think that's really healthy for our field. So, anyhow, yeah, so I received some great feedback. Um, I'm just going to briefly mention that um, in response to my mention of posting the 3D models of the Ziggurat of Ur and the Mah, and that I was waiting to get permission for that from the Iraqi antiquities authorities, I got a, a very nice email from former um, interviewee guest on this podcast from a couple of years ago, Isaac Ola. And, you know, he was. Congratulating me, I guess, uh, for nice. taking you know the concerns of, of the Iraqis and waiting, you know, and not just doing this because I could, but actually trying to engage with the Iraqis in the display of some of their own cultural mm-hmm. heritage. And He sent me along a long link to um, to a YouTube video and a link to uh, an or actually he sent me along a long PDF of an article talking about 3D modeling and community engagement and pipelines for engaging other people so that it isn't just, you know, the researchers in their ivory tower doing something because they can but to try to figure out how to get the various stakeholders involved in the process. And this is again, this is something very healthy for our field. I would love to have him back on at some point to talk about this. Yeah. But this was a little sideways to what we were talking about. Some of the other things Wouter, who you just interviewed on the CRM podcast, and that should be coming yeah. out soon. I'm looking forward to seeing what he has to say. He's kind of a super commenter on our uh, on our <laughs> members-only Slack. <laughs> and he gave me some very pointed, very good ideas about my own mobile GIS that vastly simplified it. Hmm. Yeah, That's awesome. so what I have now for the mobile GIS, and you know, this follow up to that episode is that I've settled on using ArcGIS Field Maps as the uh, the data collection, and it took me a while to get to figure out how to use it. I have a license now because I'm working for the University of Pennsylvania on this project in Lagash. Uh, I have a license through Penn and was brought into the ArcGIS world that we have, uh, at Penn and Mm -hmm. got access to files and such that we had that I previously didn't have access to. I've never used ArcGIS. Well, I used ArcMap like 30 years ago, I think. Sure. And, but I've been using QGIS heavily and I used grass quite a bit in my dissertation. So it took me a little bit to get my brain around ArcGIS. I'm still learning it, but it's, it's interesting, you know, again, to that left-handed scissors, I've, don't have a preference at the moment between ArcGIS and uh, and QGIS It's just to me they seem to come at the same set of questions from exactly opposite ways <laughs> my impression of QGIS and of GRASS in the past was that it was primarily file-based right you'd mm-hmm. have a shapefile, you would have a raster, whatever. And then to that, you could attach data. And my impression now of uh, ArcGIS is it's more or less inverted. You start with the data from which you produce the maps. I realize this is a vast oversimplification, but I had to step back and figure out that there were a few just very minor ways of readjusting my perspective on the software before I could actually use it. And now that I have done that readjustment, I started using it. I found a nice tutorial online that explained how to set up field maps. I started using that. So again, because of Vouter's input and because of then having some free time to play with this, I now have three iPads set up all ready to go, uh, kits with extra cables and Battery packs and such, with our GIS field maps that hopefully in the field, if you go there and you click a button and you choose what kind of a the recording it is, and it you know gives you the uh, there's a different color for write offs and for positive and negative, and you click another button to say what time it is when you make that that recording and another button to put your name into it and boop, away you go. I'm not even mm. putting down the uh, the coordinates, or well, it's recording the coordinates by GPS, but I'm not even putting down the name of the target location because I realized I could just match that up with nearest neighbors in GIS afterwards. Yeah, <laughs> so right. I simplified this as much as possible. The other half of this is how I'm simplifying the processing of the data because we're going to be collecting a lot of whatever is on the surface, which is mostly going to be potsherds, but it includes shell and slag and you know any of a number of more specific kind of, uh, of artifact types. We might find bits of statuary. We might find bits of metal objects. I don't really know until we actually start doing it, um, but I want to accommodate that. And yeah. what I ultimately want to do is I want to take these broad categories and do heat maps, you know, so bring them back into the GIS. And also take things that are important on their own right. So if say we have a piece of diagnostic pottery, pull that out of the system to hand over to the ceramicist so she can do her work with the tools that she's used to using, but then still have that link back to the original collection location so that we have mm. you know, a trail of the provenience of the objects. And so right now I'm exploring doing that bit in uh, in Wild Note, right? having okay. a very simple form that material or artifact type by material and artifact type you go to count weight count weight count weight and then if there's something that you want to pull out there's another sub form on there that you click on and uh and say hey i'm pulling this object this will be its uh its artifact id within the artifact id system uh, here's a photograph here's why i'm taking it out of the system and hopefully we can make you know it's going to require more brain power to do that processing than it will uh, to do the data collection but i think that i can get this really honed as a very quick sort of
3: assembly line routine nice well that would be really awesome and it's it's cool seeing all these like different tools come together right uh, so you can actually do something cuz it, it's not always just like a a one-stop shop solution for, for different things that you want to do. And, and you have to understand all these tools. That's why I like talking about this stuff on this podcast. So people can say, oh, that's a thing I'll use for this. That's a thing I'll use for this. That's a thing I'll use for this. And it's just ideal when we do that. So let's take a break and finish up this discussion on the other side. And we'll end up bringing in uh, another listener that brought in some some great information for all of this. And we'll talk about that
0: in a minute.
1: lifelock alerts you to identity threats you might miss and if your identity is stolen your dedicated us-based restoration specialist will work to fix it let lifelock help protect what you've worked so hard for save 25 percent off your first year on lifelock ultimate plus at lifelock.com slash aware
3: terms apply all right welcome back to the final segment of the architect podcast episode 173 and paul has been basically crowdsourcing a lot of great information through our member services, through past guests that have been talking, which is how you really should do this. You, nobody has the answers themselves. But we also got some really cool information from a listener to the show that has done some of his own stuff. And I think Paul's going to introduce that right now. It's a very detailed email with um, some diagrams and stuff. I think we'll try to include some of his links in, this, uh, in these show notes as well, because he's got some pretty good uh, explanations for what he did. Go ahead, Paul.
2: Yeah, so this came kind of out of the- Blue. Uh, I wasn't expecting it, but it was. It really brought me great joy to get this email from <laughs> uh, from a listener named Marcus. Basically, he's a hobbyist, a technologist, an amateur genealogist, and it brought me joy because it wasn't directly anything that we're doing, but it was somebody expressing their own creative process and scientific process and. Cultural, historical process, and bringing all these together into a space that's very much adjacent to what we like on this podcast. Yeah. Um, so basically, his his problem, his his project, his the issue that he was dealing with was he was trying to do genealogical research on his family, and uh, and a lot of his family is buried in rural graves that are otherwise unmarked, and so he wanted to map these with a drone, but also he wanted to give precise RTK. Positions yeah. on uh, on these these graves, and as an avocational researcher, as somebody that was doing this uh, on the side, not uh, not writing grants, not uh, doing the stuff like we do, he was doing this strictly as a hobbyist, and decided that he, you know, from what he'd read online, he could roll his own RTK system. <laughs> yeah, no big deal. I had never even considered this as a possibility. <laughs> but he sent me a bunch of links and sent me down a rabbit hole for a few days of uh, of yeah. While well, I had a million other things to do, thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> of trying to learn about how this all worked, and basically, he was using a couple U blocks development boards, and U makes a bunch of different GPS chips for hobbyists and for other projects. You know, they they, they usually sell. Their chips to other companies to roll Mm -hmm. into products. With these couple of uh, U-Blocks developer boards and software and external antennas and a laptop and a cell phone and such, he rolled his own RTK that he used on this project. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) again, I had no idea that this was something even possible. So for under a thousand dollars, he had a system that he had the pride of uh, of developing himself, of putting together himself, but then, of course, the generosity to share the ideas, which was really, really cool. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I shared that email with you because uh, he sent it to me initially, and we were both just kind of floored by the, the the detail of it, but also that wow, this is this is stuff that sparks people's interest. That you know, there I've seen a lot of because I am. of adjacent to the the makerspace world i've seen a lot of different projects but i haven't seen many that just go full in on something that is cultural historical like this Mm -hmm. um, and technical and roll your own (laughs) so i just wanted to share that i'm going to put links to a couple of the different articles that he shared with us so in case any of our listeners want to give this a go you know he deserves credit for bringing this to our attention it did also kind of throw me. Like I said, it threw me down a rabbit hole. So I decided to do something kind of funny, and this isn't RTK at all. But I took—I've got a bunch of Raspberry Pis around. I took one, and I got a simple little sub twenty dollars USB GPS receiver, mm-hmm. and uh, and a little bit of Python scripting, and a good capacity battery pack with a uh, with a built in solar charger, solar panels, and. I've decided that I'm going to, when I get to Lagash, I'm going to, which will be next month. I don't even think I'm going to be on another recording before I leave. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to have to work around that. Um, I'm going <laughs> to mount this on, on a tripod over the site benchmark and just let it run for two days and collect data and uh, and then do a weighted average of all the points based off of their uh, dil- dilution precision. I mean, I realize this is extremely naive, the way that I'm going about it, but um, I'm just curious what two days of data collection with the GPS is going to yeah. look like and how accurately I can, uh, I can find our site benchmark. I mean, in, in my experimenting at home, after even half an hour... It zeroes in very, very accurately, at least in the horizontal, on where I've left it uh, mm-hmm. as compared to you know Google Earth images. So, nice. you know, again, thanks to
3: Marcus, not just for sharing this thing, but then for sparking this other idea. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. I love when we get interaction from listeners like that. And we'll definitely include some of the links that Marcus sent over to us. He had some inf- inspiration from a, a paper he read, and he also sent us some diagrams of his setup, which is just really really cool and well thought out it's very awesome yeah i mean really i'm i wish
2: i had his level of uh, of tech ingenuity and expertise <laughs>
3: but um I, what else can i say i was floored it's, yeah. it's really cool yeah yeah it's neat this leads to what we were mentioning at the beginning of the show and we mentioned on a couple of past shows and i've actually posted this on uh, a few social media sites for the for the apn We want people to come in and... You know, tell us what their tech challenges coming up on a project are, or maybe if you know what your solution is, or you think you know what your solution is for an upcoming project, come on to the show, you know, bear all to the, uh, to the audience and to Paul and I and say, hey, this is what we are doing on this project. This is what we're trying to accomplish. And this is what we're using to do that. Or if you don't really know fully what you're using to do that, maybe there's some holes in, in your process. Maybe we can help fill those out with just our knowledge, or we can have a listener help out because... Our listeners have a lot of knowledge about this stuff. No, absolutely. They are far smarter than than me and um, probably (laughs) me too. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) definitely. (laughs) Yeah. So, all right. You know, I wonder if, uh, man, I wonder if Starlink works over in Iraq because uh, it'd be a good thing to have over there for that like high speed internet right there. But you said internet wasn't too much of an issue for you guys, like at least where you were staying, right?
2: Yeah, we had internet at the house, and uh, we've got decent cell coverage. So you know, mobile internet on our phones works. Sure, uh, it's not great, sure. and the power isn't great. So the house internet drops out whenever the power drops out. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's much better yeah. than than I would have expected, and that's good because a lot of what I'm going to be doing is dependent, at least to some extent, on having you know internet for at least part of the day.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. All right, well, I think that about wraps up these topics for this podcast. Again, let us know. And hey, it sounds like I need to do some interviews for the next month. So if you do anything cool, <laughs> contact me. <laughs> Since Paul's going to be in Iraq, I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about when he gets back from there. But contact me, Chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. and let's just chat about the the fun things that you're doing. You may not even think that it's a a heavy, you know, tech project or something like that, but every project these days has a pretty heavy tech element. It would be fun just to talk about the process, you know, what you're doing and you may think you're not doing anything special, but you might inspire somebody else to do something based on what you're doing because maybe they didn't think about it because we can't all think of everything. And as we've been shown time and time by our time and time again, by our listeners and, and other people commenting on the show, you know, we don't have all the options. You don't have all the options, all the, all the ideas, all the, ways that you could do something. And and uh, it's nice to just hear about that and get it out there. So with a lot of projects starting up here in the spring and people starting to plan for that, let's have that discussion. Chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. And happy to tell anybody about my Starlink experiences in more detail if you want more information, because <laughs> it's a little black box <laughs> from Starlink. So... <laughs> All right. Well, Paul, any final thoughts on all this stuff? Not at the moment, but I'm sure
2: I will because again, this has been <laughs> a, a lot of fun getting this feedback. You know, yeah, we do get feedback, but this was just a, a good like bolus <laughs> injection of <laughs> of different great ideas that that you yeah. know bounce around in different directions and have kept me distracted from
3: all the things I need to be doing, but Indeed. joyfully
2: so. So, uh, so it's great.
3: Yeah. All right. Well, thanks. And if we don't hear from you on the podcast again, before you get back to, from Iraq, have a good time there. And as I said, I'm sure we'll be able to talk about all the successes and hopefully not too many failures, but there's always a few, you know, some things mm-hmm. work, some things don't, and it's always a little bit of an experiment, but I'm sure it's going to be an interesting experience either way. So thanks everybody. And we'll see you next time. Take care. Bye.
2: Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.archpodnet.com slash Contact us at Chris at Network.com and Paul at lugal.com Support the show by becoming a member at archpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is licensed free from Apple. Thanks for listening.
3: This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, Dig Tech LLC, Cultural Media and the Archaeology Podcast Network and was edited by Chris Webster.
2: This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at Network.
0: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks?